Hey, I'm back. Uh, I missed you. <laughs> missed you guys. Uh, I heard Topher did a great job. Rachel was great also uh, up here the last couple weeks. But it's good to be back with you. I can almost see you, but it's, it's actually darker where you're sitting than where I am. So you can see me. I can kind of see you. We're, we're good. Uh, I, I'm really glad to, see, to, to be back here with you and, uh, and worshiping together with, with the family. I miss you guys when, when I'm gone. I want to tell you about a chili cook-off we did a couple months ago. So the men's ministry at Area 10 back in January we did a chili cook-off. And, um, you know, chili should be easy enough. You know, you have a competition with chili. And, and chili's like meat and beans, right? Like it's usually pretty standard stuff. But if you're going to win a chili cook-off, you're going to have to up the game a little bit. You know, you're going to have to put special ingredients in that are, like, memorable. So people end up bringing, like, you know, whatever game meat in, in there to, to, to make in the chili. And they start adding all sorts of, like, extra ingredients like, you know, cinnamon and chocolate and grape jelly and hops and battery tire acid and battery acid and old tires and just stuff, you know, like gets thrown in the chili. And, um, and this year, the chili that won, the, the secret sauce of this chili, the, the thing that made it special is that it had blueberries in it. That's weird, right? Uh, who puts blueberries in chili? And the answer is winners. Winners put blueberry in chili because that was the winning chili. You're like, actually, I didn't know I was going to love this, but this is, this is really good. And I was thinking about that idea of secret sauce. You know, there's like the, the special thing in chili. There's like uh, your mom's spaghetti, right? Like you had vomit on your sweater. With, uh, like there's some special thing in your mother's spaghetti. There's like a barbecue, um, like the kind of things that you put in barbecue uh, to make it extra with the extra amount of kick. Uh, I don't want to talk about barbecue too much like like families have split up over, over barbecue and, and churches have split, I think, over like Carolina versus Texas versus whatever. So we won't go too far into that. But it is this idea that there is this special sauce, these secret ingredients to something that ends up making uh, the thing really fantastic. And so we are ending this series today called Intimacy, and we've been talking about friendship for the last six weeks. And going through some different aspects of it, uh, what to do when relationships are broken and, and how do we reconcile things, um, what are we looking for in friends, what does it mean to be a friend, that, that kind of thing. Um, and the idea of this is that there's a lot of fake sort of closeness in the world, there's, but to get real intimacy, which is emotional closeness with people, we're going to have to maybe do some things differently than our Instagrammed world would have us do them. And so today I want to talk about really the secret sauce of, of friendship, and this is really the hard part, maybe the hardest part of friendship, the hardest thing for us to get at. Um, I want to talk about that today because if you have this, you have a better shot of having good relationships. We're going to talk about one thing today that can permeate everything in our relationships. Um, and if you want them to be like you, you want, you know, if you want a healthy life-giving relationship, you're going to need this special ingredients. And because all of us have been in situations where we had friends, we were in relationships with friends where for whatever reason, the relationship just seems like shallow. Like it wasn't, you know, you got friends who are with you when times are good, but then when things are bad, they're not really with you. Um, you've been in relationships and you thought, man, I, I wish I could share with my friend this, but they're not the kind of friend that would listen to this, or um, I can't open up about this because we don't have that kind of friendship, um, where we, we, we feel like, oh, people know me, but they don't really know me, that, that kind of thing. We've all been in situations like that, and so today we're going to talk about why that happens, um, what, what, what is going on in, in the dynamic there. Uh, we had the opportunity over the last couple of weeks to travel as a family. Uh, my wife finished grad school and we were celebrating and, 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 and going away. And, and one place we went to is Iceland. And one of the things people always ask when you go to Iceland is they'll say, oh, did you see the northern lights? And, uh, 
here's the deal on that. So a couple things. One is um, that's more of a winter thing, and we're not there in the winter, so it's a lot harder to see that time of, this time of year. That wasn't really a, a doable thing. But also, I, I had friends, uh, my friend at the church here, Dan Ayers, was telling me about it. He said, oh, he went to Iceland a couple years ago, and he said, you know, um, if you've ever seen a picture of the Northern Lights, which is, usually looks like this, um, that's what you think you're going to go see. You're like, oh, this would be amazing, like, because who wouldn't want to see that? It looks incredible, right? He said, but the, the reality is that's a camera with, like, the, the exposure, like, wide open so that it, it picks up the light extra. Um, that's, in effect, sort of like a photo trick. He said, to the naked eye, the northern lights looks like, ah, uh, I think there's something green up there maybe, like, right over there. I can't even, like, really disappointing compared to what you think you're about to see, right? Um, what we want is that, but... The actual thing is, is maybe not all that, that great. Um, and so uh, the, what do you do when the authentic experience of something is kind of underwhelming? We, we want this Instagrammed, not authentic experience of it, actually. Um, and so what we end up doing is, is filtering things to make them look better than they actually look. I have a buddy of mine who does wedding photography, and he says to his brides when he's in, they're interviewing about hiring him, he says, I will give you photos at the end of your wedding. Uh, I will edit them, and I will give you the photos of what your wedding felt like. I'm not going to give you the raw photos of what everything exactly looked like. I'm going to try to capture what it felt like to you to be there. He said, in the same way, when you go to a concert, if you were to walk out of a concert, they wouldn't hand you a recording of the concert you just attended. They would hand you a recording maybe of a live show that that band has done because they've edited it down and they want it to feel like what you felt like when you were in there, not the actual experience. This is what we do. We put filters on things to make them look real rather than just actually do the real thing. We put filters on our pictures to make them look better than they look. Um, and I get why we curate our image. I get why we put on the facade, because we all want to be liked. I want to put my best image of me out there. I don't want a picture from that angle or making that face or whatever. Um, but the problem is when we, when we uh, filter everything in our lives, we, we end up missing out on the real stuff, the authentic stuff, and it does not facilitate and bring us deep connections um, when we're constantly filtering. So what is the opposite of filtering? If, if we're doing that a lot in our culture, what would be the opposite of that? Well, the opposite of filtering, of giving someone the real you, is uh, a word that we would say you become vulnerable. Um, you can't have deep relationships without vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is scary. In fact, it, it, it comes from a Latin word, vulnerare, which means to wound. So if you think about vulnerability as I'm willing to be wounded or I'm opening, my, opening myself up to be wounded, you can see why none of us really want to do that. Like, ooh, that sounds terrible. I'm going to get wounded. That, that is what the word means. It means I'm opening myself up and you're going, to, you're going to possibly attack me. I'm going to say something. I'm going to reveal something. And you can use that thing against me if you want. And none of us wants, wants that. We want a deep relationship. We just don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be wounded. We don't want to open ourselves up to being hurt. Um, it's just easier to be shallow. Honestly, it's easier to talk about music and sports and used to be easier to talk about politics, but that's vulnerable now as well. Um, we don't want to be hurt, uh, so we don't like vulnerability because 
we've been hurt before and we don't want to get hurt again. Uh, we don't like vulnerability because our parents or friends when we were children did not model that well for us. So we have had a bad experience that people jump down your throat when you say what you're really feeling, that kind of thing. So we are not vulnerable. Uh, we don't want to be vulnerable because we're scarred from past hurt and trauma that have, that have shown up for us the times that we were open and real with people. Um, and I get why we filter. I get why we put up the facade. It is much easier Instead of being vulnerable, it's easier to play more video games, to watch more Netflix, to work at the office a little longer so you don't have to deal with all those people at home. Um, it's just easier uh, than, than, uh, than, than being, being real. Um, I get it. We want authenticity, though. We crave it. We long for it. We long for it so much that we're willing to settle for fake authenticity. Uh, so what's that? Um, a couple years ago, Nordstrom started selling a pair of jeans. I want to show them to you. This is a pair of jeans you can buy from Nordstrom that um, have mud caked on them. Um, those are new. You can buy them like that. Um, and the ad for the jeans said that um, they're, they're like, you know, this Americana rugged workwear that shows that you're not afraid to get down and dirty. But the problem is... You, they, you're, you're not getting down dirty. You bought them like that. And, it, and just so you know, it doesn't wash out. So they will always look like that. So we want to look like we get down and dirty. We just don't actually want to get down and dirty. So what is this fake authenticity we're going for? Like, man, I'm just really rugged or whatever. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. And they're $425. So <laughs> that's problematic. I have a business idea for you. How about, or maybe for me, uh, you give me your jeans and I'll make them look like that for like a hundred bucks. I'll like cut you a deal and I'll find some way to make it so they don't wash out and they look terrible. Um, but it's weird, right? Like why, why do we settle for, we, we so long for authenticity, we're willing to settle for something that's like fake authentic um, and, and hopes that it, it will project the right thing for us. Um, look, if we're not actually authentic, if we're not actually real and open, we're not going to actually get the benefits that that brings. So what is vulnerability? Vulnerability is more than being honest. I can be honest with you and not vulnerable. I could tell you something true about myself that doesn't matter that much. When I am vulnerable, I am being honest with you. It goes to another level. I'm being honest with you about something with which you could hurt me if you chose to. Like I'm really putting it out there and you can take that information and wound me with it if you want to. And so you have to be careful who you do that with, right? You're not going to be vulnerable in that way to just anybody. You need to find some safe people to do that with. But here's the question. With the right people and in the right context, are you actually open with anybody, with, with people? Are, do, do you really engage or do you find yourself most often being quiet, cowering, not, not really saying who you are and, and what's going on? Now, here's how I know when I need to be open and vulnerable. I guess I could say it this way. It's when I feel small. When I feel small. And that may present in different ways. When I'm feeling small to me, um, where I want to hide, I may feel, it may look like I'm angry or humiliated or um, afraid. Um, but when I get into that space where I, I feel small, um, I need to express that to someone and say like, hey, this is what's going on and this is a vulnerable place. I'm feeling there's something tender going on here. The, the clinical word that psychologists might use for that, that feeling of smallness that presents in anger and fear and humiliation, all these other things, is shame. 
When I feel shame, that's probably a good indicator that I need to open up with someone and express. Now, shame is what you feel when your mom makes a comment about your parenting. And, you, and it's not just a throwaway comment that didn't land on you. It like goes down deep into the soul because she's the one who made it about your parenting and you're like, she never thinks I'm good enough. It's not just the one incident. You make it about everything, right? Shame is when your teacher corrects you and you think, oh, I'm a terrible student. I'm never going to learn this. I'm, I'm awful. When am I ever going to get this? That's the shame voice talking in your head. Shame's when you don't have enough money coming in and you look at your bills and you're like, not only do you think, oh, this is just a bad season, you think, I'm just a, not a good provider. I'm, 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 I just... I'm not the man I should be. I'm not the woman I should be because I'm not taking care of these things. Uh, that's, that's the shame voice talking. Shame is when you're dating but you don't want to make a commitment because you don't want to turn out to be like your parents and they, all the baggage they had and they had issues and I never saw good relationships and so I don't want to make a commitment uh, because the shame voice comes up in your head. Shame is when you yell at your kids again and you think they are going to be screwed up for life because of what I've done. Uh, you know, this is never going to be able to be fixed and I've blown it again and I'm terrible at this parenting thing. Shame is when you deal with your ex and they say that one thing that gets uh, at you and they know they can and you, you hear that again and you can't dismiss it and you feel like they own you and it's a very uncomfortable situation. In all of that stuff, you end up feeling small. And so a logical response to that is to filter, is to get numb, is to say, I'm not going to make any commitments, is to say, I'm going to be cynical, I'm not going to engage, I'm not going to love again, um, because everyone around me is crazy. And the truth is, there's stuff in you that's making you crazy, and, and, and that needs to be dealt with. You are more important than what you do, you are more valuable than your actions, um, and the shame says you're inadequate in what you do and that what you do defines who you are. Um, and that cripples us and it's a result of sin. I want to show it to you in the scripture. Adam and Eve are created and set in the Garden of Eden. We, we look at this scripture a lot and really the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, in the Bible, which we're going to be studying in a summer Bible studies this summer, are so foundational to the, to the Bible. Um, and so you end up coming back to them a lot because it says a lot about our humanity and who we are and why we are. Well, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and it's good. They're, they're, they're doing fine until chapter 3 hits, and Eve sins, and Adam sins with her. Listen to what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The, uh, Adam and Eve sin, um, and, and in, in their sin, they feel this new experience. It's called shame. Because if you go back to Genesis 2, just before this, the last thing it says in Genesis 2 is that they were together, they were naked and unashamed. And then they sin, and the result of sin is shame. They feel bad. They feel like they need to cover up. They're suddenly ashamed and embarrassed of something about themselves. Sin brought that about. Sin is where they messed up, and it led to their shame. And none of us like that feeling. And we all come up with different ways to handle it. For some people, they just want to handle their shame by throwing out the concept of sin altogether to say, I'm not really sinning. That wasn't really a problem. I have these excuses why uh, that, that didn't apply to me. And they throw out any standard of truth or concept of, of sin. Um, 
and, 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 that, and that causes all sorts of problems with us. We have, as a culture, we, we claim that we have rights. Um, our Constitution talks about that. But those rights are attached to God. Inalienable rights endowed with us, you know, from our creator is what, is what it says. The idea that the reason we have rights is because we are created in the image of God. And so if you remove the idea of God from the equation, where do your rights actually come from? And so people like to, you know, kind of sever that kind of stuff, saying, ah, you know, uh, I don't want to think about responsibilities. I don't want to think about sin. I don't want to think about I've messed up or I owe somebody something like that because I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel shame. So I'd rather just pretend none of that stuff is real and that stuff doesn't really matter. Um, but it is real. Um, we do blow it, and we do burn relationships with God and with others, um, and, and uh, that's, a, that's a sin, and a lot of times the natural result of that sin is that we feel ashamed. Now, shame is different than feeling guilty. It's, it's okay to feel guilty. Uh, nobody loves it, but it's maybe a, an important thing. If you do something stupid, I hope you feel guilty for doing it. I hope you don't uh, let it define your life and say that this is just who I am. Like a couple of years ago, somebody slashed the tires on our van and they slashed them twice in a period of about six weeks. And I don't know if it was the same person slashed them both times. Seems awfully coincidental. And I don't know if people had it out for me or minivans or something. I don't know. I'm like, why are you slashing my tires? Whoever slashed my tires, I hope they feel really guilty about it. I just do. <laughs> like, I don't want them to be ashamed like you're a horrible person. Um, I just want them to feel pretty guilty, like that they did something wrong. And if they don't feel guilty about it, there's something wrong there. I hope that, that they're hearing this message one day on a podcast and like, that was me. I slashed that guy's minivan. Um, and he publicly shamed me or whatever. No, like, um, it's, it's okay to feel guilty. That's a, that's a part of life. It's supposed to motivate us and move us towards repentance to changing some behavior but we're not supposed to feel all this weight of, of shame. Um, and so, you know, our culture doesn't know what to do with it. It says, I'm going to deny that I'm guilty. I didn't cheat on my wife. I'm just polyamorous. We're going to come up with all these names for our behavior so that we don't have to feel guilty. Um, and it's a mess. One of, the, one of the, you know, greatest Christians, I guess you could say, of all time was the Apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament Strong believer, planted churches all around the Mediterranean. And Paul talks about, man, if, this is like one of the most real things in the New Testament. If you're going to read like about humanity, the reason the teachings of Jesus and then his followers has endured for centuries is because this stuff is real about humanity, about who we are. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 7 about sin and what he deals with and what we as humans deal with. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can anyone relate to that? Oh, man, I'm on a diet, but I keep eating chocolate cake. I say I want to get up and exercise, but I don't. I, I, wasn't, I said I wasn't going to say anything about her, but I did. I, I was, man, I was really trying to live under a budget, but I just overspent again. Uh, the things I don't want to do, these are the things I end up doing. He goes on, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In verse 21, it says, so I find it to be a law that when I, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He's like, man, there's this war that goes on inside of me. And he's honest about it. And, and it's, it's sin. We, 
we, we blow it and we mess up. And because we mess up, because we sin and because we feel ashamed about that, we end up just sort of like faking authenticity. We end up filtering our lives so we can make it sort of feel better and make it at least look better. And if all of that sounds depressing, I think it kind of is. There's a reason why depression's high in this country is because we're playing this game over and over. But here's the deal. Genesis 3, the sin, the fall of, of humanity, that's not God's first word about us. That's not who we are. In fact, if you back up to Genesis 1, when humans were created, listen to what God says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 31, just a few verses later, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God creates all these things in humanity, the, the, in the creation of the earth, and the plants, and the trees, and all that, and he calls all of them good, and then when he creates humans, he calls them very good. That is the start of us. The start of us is not you are just a dirty sinner. The start of us, our origin, our identity is you are created in God's image, and you are loved by God. You can't start with Genesis 3. You have to start with Genesis 1. This is who we are. We are people who are loved and pursued by God. And, and even as we talk about sin, you have to see it in this backdrop of creation. Because if you don't, that sin will turn to shame and it will destroy you. You have worth in God. Some people get upset about talking about sin in our culture, like, oh, that's so dated. And look, if you're going to talk about it poorly and you're going to beat people over the head with it, then maybe they should get mad that you talk about it that way. But you have to see it against the backdrop of a loving God. Sin is not your beginning. It is not your core. You are loved by God. That's your core. You were created in his image. That is your identity. Um, no matter how much you've messed up, how much you've blown it even this week, that's not who you are. And so we can't confuse Genesis 3 with Genesis 1. I am a sinner, but first I am a creation of God. I am knitted in the womb by him. Um, but we do sin. We do blow it. And then what happens? Like, how can we deal with that? Listen to Paul again in Romans 7. This is his conclusion about all this, like, I do the bad things I don't want to do. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, I'm a mess, he says. Who's going to save me? Oh, Jesus. Jesus saves me. Jesus covers over my guilt and my shame, all of that. He's the only one who can. He lives a sinless life. He is nailed on the cross for our sins, for everything you've done wrong. Jesus covers that and makes you right ultimately with your creator. He's the only one with the authority to, to, to make that connection between us and our heavenly father. And Jesus does that. And when you give your life to him and you are baptized into him, immersed in water, you commit in faith to follow after Jesus, you repent of your sins, you become part of his family and you are brought into relationship with him. And that's powerful stuff because it deals with your guilt. It deals with your shame. And to bring it back around to vulnerability, it allows you to be more vulnerable now. Because if, if the origin of who I am is in Genesis 1, and I am actually uh, created by God in his image and loved by him, then I know where I came from. 
And if because I'm in a relationship with Jesus, I know that there's heaven one day and I know my future. I know my past, my future's secure. I can live in the pre- present appropriately because these things are set around me. And that's, that's the power of it. I can, I can be vulnerable in the moment because I'm, I'm confident about where, um, about who, who I am in, in Christ. So what does all this mean? I, I called this the secret sauce. I call, call this the hardest part, or the hard part of friendship. It, it, it requires us, uh, the hard part is to be vulnerable, and that is the hardest thing to get in relationships because you have to really put yourselves out there. You have to take risks, and you have to get into the arena. And I'll be honest with you, I, I haven't always been good with this. Um, I'm not up here like, Spitting platitudes, guys, of like, oh, here's an intellectual exercise. Here's something interesting that I read about one time, and I want to tell you about it, and you should read about it too. Um, I'm having to live this in an uncomfortable way and, and have been diving into this stuff for years. Um, and so this is very present for me, the idea that I would open myself up and say how I really feel, and I'd, and I'd allow... And I would say something vulnerable and I, would, and, and I would get wounded by it, that people would take my words and use them as knives to poke me with. Um, I've experienced that. Um, and it just super sucks. And um, the temptation is to run away and to say, I don't want to ever do that again. I don't want to expose myself to, to, to people and my honesty and, and to be vulnerable. I, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to get back in the arena. I want to disengage. Um, and and I, I, I've experienced that. Um, Brene Brown, our, uh, she writes a lot about vulnerability and empathy and shame and in work cultures and different things. And our staff has been reading the book Dare to Lead by her. Um, and she's great. She's got a lot of good stuff to say. If you read some of her books, you'll see it. Um, if you don't like to read, she has a Netflix special, so you could watch that. There's a lot of good stuff in there as well. Um, but in the book, Dare to Lead, she talks about an exercise she'll do with workshops or groups of people. Um, and, and she will say, um, fill in the blank, in my house growing up, vulnerability was blank. And so you fill in the blank. My, you know, vulnerability was not talked about. Vulnerability was um, not modeled well, whatever it is. And one woman in the book, she said, um, and, and I read this, uh, it was very powerful. She said, in my house growing up, vulnerability was the first step to betrayal. Have you ever read something and it like jumped off the page and like stabbed you in the gut? Um, that's how that landed with me. And I was like, ooh, I wish I, wish I didn't know what that meant. I, I wish I didn't understand very viscerally what that's talking about. Um, and, it's, and it's been, I've had a, painful experiences with it. Um, and what I want to do is walk away and leave the arena and not put myself out there. And I want to retreat to a world of rainbows and kittens. Um, but I don't like kittens that much. So, but Brene Brown says, um, and she's got a lot of good things to say. My, my buddy Chris says that, uh, if Brene Brown coughs, I will take notes. Um, but, she, but she said, um, vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you, and it's the last thing I want you to see in me. And she's right. And that is why our relationships aren't stronger. It's because I'm okay if you're a little bit messed up, but I don't want you to think I am. 
I don't want to be real with you on that level. So how do we be vulnerable again, especially after we've been hurt? And this is, this is it. This is the best I've got for you, okay? How, how do we do this? Um, I think the key is we have to recognize that um, vulnerability feels like weakness, but weakness isn't always a bad thing. We think it is. In survival of the fittest culture, if I show my weakness, that's bad. You're going to think I'm weak, and that's no good, and I have an image to maintain. But weakness isn't always a bad thing. The Apostle Paul himself struggled with something. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He talks about a struggle that he has. He prays to God and asks God to remove this struggle. And he said, God told me no. Instead, what God said is, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, my power is made perfect not in your preaching, in your, uh, your, all your skills and t- teaching and, and starting churches and shepherding people and mentoring. That's not where my power is going to really show. Where my power will really show through you, Paul, is in your weaknesses, in the stuff that you're not good at. That's when something really happens. And if that was true for Paul, why isn't that true for us? Maybe there's power in weakness. It seems unlikely, but there's something there. Jean Vanier was an a, a, a officer in the, in the British Navy in the 1940s, and he got to travel around a lot, and one of the things he noticed then in the later decades of his life, one of the things he noticed is that um, people, the account I was reading referred to people who are mentally handicapped or mental challenges, right, uh, adults with mental disabilities, and he would see these folks and he noticed that our culture shies away from them and doesn't treat them well. And so he moved to an area near Paris and he opened up La Arche Community, uh, a community designed to uh, minister to adults with uh, mental disabilities. Um, and that actually, that community grew and it grew into 134 different communities like that in 35 countries around the world. Jean Vanier, the guy who started that, um, just really had a gift for seeing people. And he actually died this year. Um, and, I, and I found a couple quotes from him that I thought were pretty powerful. Listen to what he says. We human beings are fundamentally the same. We all belong to a broke, common broken humanity. We all have wounded and vulnerable hearts. Each of us needs to feel appreciated and understood. We all need help. And listen to what he says about weakness. Weakness carries within it a secret power. The care and the trust that flow from weakness can open up the heart. The one who is weak can call forth powers of love in the one who is stronger. There's something there. There's something that he noticed in in looking at humanity. That there's a secret power if we are vulnerable, if we appear to be weak. Um, I, I truly believe the answer to a stale marriage is vulnerability. The answer to surface friendships is vulnerability. The answer to a dating relationship that isn't going anywhere is vulnerability. Where you say, hey look, this is what makes me feel small right now. And I want to tell you about it, and let's work on it together. So the challenge for all of us in relationships, especially in our friendships, is to, to step up and, and be vulnerable. Even if it hurt before, um, we, we still need to step into it again and not close ourselves off to the world. Find a friend and speak up. You don't have to... You know, you don't have to be mechanical about it. I'm going to be vulnerable right now. Like, this is what vulnerability sounds like when you say it out loud. It sounds more like, hey, can we talk? Hey, I need to tell you something. Hey, thank you for that. I, here's a need that I have. I'm feeling abandoned. I feel small right now. That's what vulnerability sounds like when we start to 
speak it. So go for it. Because when you do, as scary as it is, um, that's when the relationships, the friendships, um, and, and really all relationships have the opportunity to go to a deeper level when we embrace the power that comes with the weakness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is scary stuff. Um, it is difficult to navigate um, the relationships, the um, disappointment. God, there's people in this room that are hurting, people that um, are disappointed with maybe other people in this room or they're disappointed with people outside this room and there's just hurt there and um, wounding. And so, God, I, I pray as that you give them insight of when is the time to speak up and be vulnerable and say, this is, this is where I feel small, this is where I feel hurt. Um, and I pray that you reward them for, for doing that. God, may we all be not afraid to get back into the arena, but to really uh, step up and grow. God, we recognize there is a power in, in our weaknesses that, that you can do your extra work in. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who um, exposed himself and made himself vulnerable to the point of dying a death at the hands of the Romans on the cross. Um, I, I pray uh, and I thank you for his sacrifice. And it's in his, his name we pray, amen.